Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank, your host this week. We are gonna talk about acceptance. You know, you gotta accept things in life sometimes. Uh, and guiding us on that journey will be the hilarious Phoebe Robinson. She's one of the two dope queens from the podcast and HBO show. And her book is very aptly titled, Everything's Trash, But It's Okay. Plus, we're going to talk to Thomas Page McBee, who fought for acceptance as the first transgender man to ever box in Madison Square Garden. And we're going to hear some music from a certified wunderkind, Sammy Brew, who I'm just going to have to accept is cooler than me, even though he was 17 years old when he recorded this music. All right, that's the plan. Stay with us. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hello, Luke. Wow. <laughs> that was like I had reached an automated voice that was going to help me with whatever my uh, customer service needs might be. <laughs> Press one for another person to talk to other than me. <laughs> um, are you uh, ready to do our little radio program? Totally, odally, odally. Okay. Uh, Molly, are we recording this? Yes, we are recording. Ooh, that was also <laughs> that very, was good. very good. You guys could be like a team <laughs> for all of your automated needs. Mm. All right, Elena, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded from our actual houses. Welcome to the Livewire House Party. This week, comedian and podcaster Phoebe Robinson. Writer Thomas Page McBee. And music from Sammy Brew. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Oh, thank you very much, Elena Passarello. I tell you what, I just, during the before times, didn't get nearly enough huzzas from the live (laughs) audience. So I'm glad that's finally being rectified. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We have a fun show in store this week. As always, uh, we like to start with the audience question. This week, we asked the Livewire audience, what is something small that you finally just accepted and we're going to hear some of those uh, answers in a moment. First, though, Elena, I wanted to ask you, mm. uh, what is something small that you have finally just accepted? 
Well, I guess it's not super small, but I have like finally accepted that I will never, ever be as cool as my grandfather, my, mm. my 96 year old, uh, South Carolina born and raised grandfather was just named, uh, the elk of the year from what? the national elk lodge. Yeah. Breaking out the clap machine for that. <laughs> Of the of all of the fraternal order of elks in the United States of America, your granddad got the award for mm-hmm. the top elk, and he was given it because of his like exemplary service toward veterans. He's a veteran of World War II. He was in the Pacific Theater in the Navy. He was a CB, uh, and he ever since has. Uh, usually, he goes to the veterans' hospital a couple of times a month to talk to the veterans there in Charleston, South Carolina, but. In the COVID times, he's signed up with a local motorcycle gang to collect supplies and food and things to go to the veterans, not just in the VA hospital, but anywhere. So he really amped it up his game this year and he got the big award. And I, I called him and I was like, you've been elk of the month before. How does it feel to be elk of the year? And he was like, oh, you get a better pin. (laughs) (laughs) What's his name? Charlie Passarello. Charlie Passarello, <laughs> yeah. tip of the cap. That's incredible. He's the best. <laughs> Do you have a small thing, though, that you are yeah. finally coming to terms with? What is it? Yes. The dishwasher is never getting unloaded. <laughs> um, I am going to do every single dish <laughs> by hand. Like, I have right now, the dishwasher is full, and I have one plate that's not in the dishwasher, and I just keep washing it. <laughs> I will use, if I need to, plastic utensils or things that came from fast food restaurants, like reuse a cup that I washed out. Like whatever I got to do to not empty the dishwasher, which by the way, is something that probably takes under four minutes. Yeah, it's real easy. there's a psychological block for me around the dishwasher. And so that's that's just going to stay there. Those dishes are going to be, I guess, just entombed Mm. and they're just going to be in the dishwasher until further notice. And I'm going to continue to use the two or three things that are out free and loose in the kitchen. Hey man, simplify your life. That sounds great. Right. Like I'm going Marie Kondo on it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What is the audience saying uh, is some small stuff that they finally had to just accept? Okay. Well, here's one from Anik. Anik has finally had to accept the fact that my cats don't like me. (laughs) I wonder if more people are realizing that during the pandemic because there's so much more time at home. And like, whereas you could kind of fool yourself and thinking maybe the cat misses me when I'm away, but now we're just right there with them and there's just no arguing Mm -hmm. or deluding ourselves. My cats really liked me more in the beginning and now the bloom Mm. is off the rose. Let me tell you, (laughs) they're like you again. Uh, what else are the listeners saying they're they're coming to terms with? Oh, here's one from Scott. Scott has finally just accepted that, quote, I am never going to be able to organize all my books and DVDs. And I, I was talking with a friend of mine about this. Do you organize your books? Like, do you have a system for displaying? No. 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 And, and we get so many books as part of this job, yeah. which is, you know, a kind of a cool thing, but they really start to pile up. Mm-hmm. How about you? I don't, I've never been able to have one. Um, like people color code their books or they, mm-hmm. uh, you know, put them a alphabetize or genre. The only thing I've been able to do is my friends who have written books, I've got a special shelf just for them. 
Oh, know. that's nice. And you're, you know, you, you run with a, very, with a very <laughs> literary circle. So that's probably a fairly extensive number of people, right? Especially because I count every single person that we've ever had on Livewire as my friend now. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Livewire house party. Let's welcome our first guest over. He was the first transgender man to ever box in Madison Square Garden. And he wrote all about it in this fascinating book called Amateur, a true story about what makes a man a man. Uh, this is our chat with Thomas Page McBee. We recorded it back in 2018. This is probably one of the many books on Elena's shelf. Word. This, this chat was <laughs> recorded at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland, Oregon. Thomas, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I, this book is really great. Um, it it covers a lot of important topics and also covers a lot of boxing, which I'm maybe the last fan of that sport. <laughs> so it was right up my alley. I want to start though a little bit with your sort of personal story. When did you first get the sense that your gender did not match the physical body that you were born into? You know, it's an interesting question because I feel like it's often the one people lead with, and I it's hard for me to answer because I feel like. I put it back to you. Like, when did you first realize that your gender was uh, the one that you were assigned? You know, sure. it's hard to kind of know, right. right? Like, I I feel like I had a really lucky childhood in a lot of ways. I had a parent who was really supportive of me, and so as I got older, uh, it, it actually for me, I had like a kind of liberated experience of gender for a really long time. And then as I got older, and sort of came into a realization that physically I didn't feel totally great about my body, but I actually felt like my, my gender was pretty well developed, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And so I just sort of, like, as an adult, I actually had to bring my body into alignment with my sense of self, but that was very well formed, which I think isn't everyone's experience. Well, the reason I asked that question, I guess, is because you write in the book that, at least as far as your physical life as a man, yeah. that didn't start till much later for you than That's it right. starts for, like, somebody like me. Yeah. And you had a lot of learning to do, yeah. like after the age of 30, after yes. you had started to transition. Yeah. What was the stuff that, that you at age 30 or 32, you're like, oh, wow, this is physically being a man. I didn't expect this. Well, um, I feel like I have only ever paid dues, if that makes sense, like as a man. But at the same time, on the opposite side of that, as a man, I don't have to pay any dues. Like I had a gender identity before this where I was sort of androgynous and masculine. And in that reality, like, it's not like you pay dues and then you get access to everything. You just never do because uh, you're not in the system of binary genders that people understand. But then when I turned 30 and I transitioned, it was like suddenly everything fell away and I just had all these privileges. I mean, it's so radically different to be in a legible gender identity and a male one and a white one at that. So I think I was really struck by that. And then simultaneously, like a lot of what physically was different for me actually involved things that were hard about being a man, if that makes sense. Like... Uh, Sociologists call it the man box, but there's like the ways that men are expected to behave that include things like lack of access to intimacy and physical touch and um, showing your emotions and those sorts of things. So those two things together were, for me, the biggest challenges of my transition. Yeah, in your book, it says that you had to start taking exclamation points out of emails. Right. It really gave me a sense of how, how global the revision has to be when you're uh, reevaluating the way that you're walking in the world. Yeah, although I think now I've added them back in. Yeah, yeah. I'll go four exclamation points. <laughs> yeah. I don't even care, but yeah. maybe that's, you know, cis privilege. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to, like, look at that through the lens of what does this say about me. Well, I mean, it is, though. I mean, we're joking, but it is. When I first transitioned, I really 
really tried to just pass and be the man that the world expected. And then I think as I was doing that, I was realizing more and more, no matter how happy I was at home, in my apartment, in my body, whenever I left the house, I was like, this is a nightmare between the expectations of masculinity and also actually feeling like I was experiencing privileges that I, I didn't want to be experiencing without doing something about. Both of those things were really troubling to me. Like, what do you do when you're a man and you're around other men and they're saying something? Right. Uh, that's disparaging of women or, or LGBTQ people. Like, how, how do you fit into that now? Well, now I say something. And that's the thing. Like, the bystander effect is really real. And, like, in doing a lot of reporting and research on masculinity, that was one of the first takeaways, was, like, men need to say something to other men. And actually, every time I have, it's been a positive effect. And it, that's what changes masculinity is enlarging it and like changing people's perceptions of what being a man means and what being a man means doesn't mean dominating people it doesn't mean putting down people who because of things related to sexism and homophobia and transphobia and if we don't want being a man to be associated with that we have to fight people who say that that's what being a man means you know this is the live wire house party from prx i'm luke burbank here with elena passarello we are playing a conversation with the writer thomas page mcbee about his journey as the first trans man to actually box in Madison Square Garden. Uh, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we're going to hear how it actually turned out. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. ZBiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. ZBiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make ZBiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. 
ZBiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, let's get back into this conversation with writer Thomas Page McBee. We recorded this back in 2018 at the Alberta Street Pub. Thomas was there to talk about his book, Amateur, a true story about what makes a man a man. You write in the book that after, um, I think you say it was around 2015 or something, for some reason, dudes kept trying to start fights with you, just like on the street, <laughs> yeah. like in normal life. What was going on with that? So to be totally fair, like my, my mom had passed away uh, a few months before that and sort of related to what I said earlier, I was feeling a lot of feelings, but I felt like I could only express anger. So I think I was walking around with like just a bad vibe, honestly. So, so that was on me. But on the other hand, why were men trying to fight me in the street? I don't know. It was right before the election. I don't know if there was just a bad vibe happening in general, but I, I basically went through uh, that summer of 2015, three months in a row, um, guys trying to fight me. And the last time I was like, I almost got into a street fight with this guy. And that's when, for me, that was the crossroads where I was like, I've got to face whatever it is about masculinity that is causing this because what makes this guy so different than me? Nothing really, you know, I don't want to become him. And so that was why I started, started this journey of asking all these questions about masculinity and trying to take them really with an open heart. Like why do men fight? Uh, what is a real man? Are men naturally aggressive? Is that actually a thing? And I thought these are all my things I'm afraid of or don't understand. And I'm just going to start asking them. And, uh, I signed up for this boxing match and that's how I got involved with fighting and ended up fighting in Madison square garden. Like, I knew a guy who was on a board of a charity of yeah. boxing, you know, stuff. So that's how I ended up. You had that. a bit of an in. Yes. But still, I mean, there was, you had now sort of created this dynamic for yourself where you were going to be at some point in a boxing <laughs> ring, like yes, boxing somebody. Yeah. What was it like when you actually showed up at the gym to like learn how to box? Terrifying. What do you mean? <laughs> I mean, it was scary, but everything about the experience was different than what I expected, actually. Like, uh, I think the biggest takeaway when, when people ask me about, the training was like how much intimacy I found with the men at the gym, which was a real shock. Like that's not at all what I would have expected to be saying, but uh, because of the cover of violence actually, which is how sociologists have explained this to me when I reported on it later, there's a way that men can be intimate in spaces like that, that they can't be anywhere else. So I can't, I can't remember another time where I was sort of um, treated with more support or affection, um, or just generally like where I could be as vulnerable as I was when I was training to fight, which was really shocking. Like the, the very reductive explanation would be that because these men are together and they're doing this kind of what we think of as a machismo thing, it creates space for them to then be more intimate than they might feel comfortable in other contexts? Well, because their masculinity isn't fragile. There's no one questioning like if their masculinity is real or intact. And therefore, because of that, they don't need to prove it, um, which is like obvious, but also like when you think about it, so troubling. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, I think what I found hopeful about it was that when men don't feel the need to prove their masculinity, all of those things that are just part of being a human are there, you know, and that's what I was experiencing as a, as a person training to fight. Uh, boxing is such a vulnerable sport. You know, it's just you. And anything that you're bad at is just so present. And it, I don't just mean like a move. I mean, like, if you struggle being aggressive, which is what I struggled with, everyone in the gym can see it, you know? And so 
they don't then make you feel worse or police you. They do the opposite, which is normally not what happens with masculinity. They, in fact, encourage you to learn to come forward or turn that into a strength. Um, so I experienced this sort of like a completely different understanding of masculinity because there was no fear about having to prove that you were a man. But you also did not uh, really make it public that you were trans. Right. Um, and then you, you wrote that you sort of regretted that decision a little bit later. Like, why didn't you make that known to, to folks? Yeah, well, I mean, for my safety first, uh, because I just didn't know what to expect. But also, I really didn't want to have my trans status mediate the experience at all. I didn't want to look back and think like, oh, I wonder if people are treating me differently because I'm trans. I wanted to really understand, you know, just me, myself, in my body, the way I'm being perceived. How is my experience as just a man going through this this training? Like, what exactly does it does it say about being a man? And I was worried that if people knew I was trans that they might treat me differently in some way. Uh, we're talking to Thomas Page McBee. His book is Amateur, True Story About What Makes a Man a Man. Uh, I love how honest you are in the book about how bad you were at boxing. Yeah. As the actual event was approaching and, and you were going through different sparring partners and you were finding out how really hard boxing is, did you toy with the idea of quitting? Uh, or were you worried about, about sort of embarrassing yourself when you got into Madison Square Garden? I felt like I didn't even think about quitting because I really had to do this. Like, I didn't know how to resolve these issues I was having. It almost felt like my, my transition in the first place, where I was like, first step was I knew I was a man and I needed to become one. The second one was like, how do I be the man I want to be in the world? And I really didn't know how to be that person. And because I wasn't a boy, I had no boyhood, and because I have frontal lobes, uh, when I was going through this experience of uh, dealing with masculinity, I was like, I can't reconcile what's expected of me and you know who I believe I am. Like, I just can't do this. So I felt like for my integrity, I had to do this boxing match. And it mattered so much less to me if I won or lost. And it was more about following through and like doing something that to me felt brave for doing it um, and for facing all the things related to it. So I didn't think about quitting because I... I really don't think that that was an option. <laughs> it's funny, when I hear you talk about this, you're talking about these personal motivations that are making you write, right? Yeah. But you're also using verbs like reported. It just makes me wonder, with your journalist training and the way that you solve problems and ask questions as an external reporter, how did you navigate the transition to reporting about other people to really reporting about yourself, about these personal things? Yeah, so I did the entire experience. I really tried to not talk to other people, and I just lived the experience of the fight uh, and just took a million notes and was really present in that. And then when I reported out the whole book, I like went back and talked to historians and sociologists and psychologists with those big questions in mind. Like, so the first experience is sort of the arc of the book, the fight itself, but then actually everything that fills out the book comes from the more universal, you know, and actually I'm lucky because I felt like I was hoping that that would be true, yeah. that all these hypotheses I had about myself were relevant to everyone. Right. Um, and in fact, like that was sort of the whole idea is if I insist on my humanity, I will fit within this human family, you know, in this broader way. And that actually ended up genuinely being true. Like oh. the things I was concerned about and worried about are really, really universal aspects of being a man. I don't want to give away the end of the book, but I'll, uh, I mean, we'll just say you, you made it to the fight. Yeah. You, you, you did the fight in Madison Square Garden. What did you like learn that you can apply to your real life and that other people might be able to apply to their real lives from this experience of like learning how to box? One of the things you write in the book, which I'd never thought of is uh, fighting is mostly about what you do when you're overpowered. Mm -hmm. That's like uh, a pretty profound thought, I think, for life along with boxing. Yeah, there's two things I've sort of come up with that, that answers that question. One is like related to the book itself and the process of, of doing that, which is that I think asking questions with a beginner's mind is never a bad idea. But two is like, 
I actually think learning to fight itself was actually really important. And I wasn't expecting to feel that way. And I think especially for people who are in a marginalized body in one way or the other, you know, when you're socialized to not fight, the fight is taken out of you. I think learning to come forward and to be aggressive is actually really important. Not because I think people should go in, be going around being violent to other people, but I think knowing that you have it in you to, to do that is actually a really powerful thing. And so I'm really glad that I know I can fight, even if it's just for something I believe in. All right, Thomas, uh, we here on Livewire, we like to really try to get to know our guests in a very, very personal way. Your book is, is a really personal account of your experience uh, learning how to box. And we think though there's maybe even another level that we can go to with you. And so what we have here in front of you is an actual physical jar. This has in it the five essential questions of our time. Wow. We call this the jar of truth. Here's how this is going to work. Thomas, you pick a question out of the jar of truth. Elena Passarello is going to read it, and then we want to get your honest answer to one of these five essential questions of our age. Here we go. Elena, please Mr. Read McBee. One. Yes. If you were a font, what font no. would you be? <laughs> I actually know, though. Ariel Narrow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I did not expect you to have an answer ready to go for that. <laughs> How many boxers in America would have an Ariel Narrow font answer ready to go? I think you're on a short list. Why Ariel Narrow? Well, because I've had to look at a lot of fonts to do my website, and I've thought a lot about like what feels the most aesthetically like me, and I really settle on Ariel Narrow. So bizarrely, I have an answer to that. What, it, what is it about Ariel Narrow? Is it like clean and it's narrow and it just yeah, really narrow is what sells it for me. Yeah. <laughs> really attached. I had a Times New Roman phase back in the nineties, yeah. which I, I kind of regret. I don't know. That's such a ubiquitous font. It's what about a, you? Uh I, I think I, I stay with Times New Roman because it's so bland I can tell when I'm being a bad writer. Really? Yeah, because if you put it in Garamond, all That's your true. stuff looks like the most brilliant stuff ever. There's Welcome like, to Font Talk. <laughs> You know, the crazy thing is we're probably right now airing on a public radio station somewhere in America that has a show called Font Talk Probably yeah. that led into us. And this is essentially redundant. It's your next gig. Yeah. You're going to headline I mean, Font Talk. Definitely. Because I knew right away. I know that I if I was given a limited time to live, I would just go all wingdings. No. <laughs> well, Thomas, you were literally the perfect guest to answer font-related questions. So thank you so much thank for being you. on Livewire. Thomas Page McBee, everybody. That was Thomas Page McBee, recorded back in 2018, right here on Livewire. Um, an update uh, since we last talked to Thomas, uh, he has started writing for TV. He's written for The L Word, Generation Q, and also on the uh, Netflix series Tales of the City. Oh, cool. Look for his work uh, on a screen near you. This is the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Um, each week, we like to ask the Livewire listeners a question. Uh, this week, we asked, what's something small that you finally just accepted? Um, Elena, what are the listeners saying they've had to come to terms with? 
Okay, listen to this one from Michael. Michael is coming to terms with the fact that, quote, my hair is thinning at an alarming rate and there's nothing I can do about it. And I want to commend you, Michael, on saying that that is a small thing because it is totally small because Bruce Willis is hot. I I agree with you that it is a small thing, but I also very much feel this listener's anxiety around Mm, it because mm -hmm. I, when I was like in my early 20s, I started to see signs Mm. of my forehead turning into a five head. And I am now 20 years into a fight with this hair situation. (laughs) You have so much hair. (laughs) Because I've been fighting hard. All these, all manner of shampoo and cream and lotion and weird, uh, you know, prescription drug that was for something else, but they noticed it was growing hair on the people. Like, so (laughs) I I, I salute this listener for just, you know, going with it. Because honestly, nobody cares except the person who's a little bit too obsessed with it. In this case, that would be me. It's hard when it's, you know, like you're you're such a close up on yourself. Yeah. But like, I I love a, a man with a light pate. Let's see. You know what's what's uh, always sexy is anybody who's comfortable in their own body. Amen. Amen. Okay, what else is the Livewire audience saying? Okay, this is a very special one from Linzel. Uh, it has a it has an addendum. Linzel okay. says, "I have finally accepted that some Oregonians are never going to grasp the concept that it is legal in this state to turn left at a red light if you're turning onto a one-way street." Uh, so long as you check for pedestrians first, which is true. You can mm-hmm. turn left on red if it's a one way. But just for the sake of accuracy, Linzel attached on Twitter to the tweet the the law itself. So- <laughs> wow. Are there places where you're not allowed to do that? Yeah. I guess I've always lived in states where that was just kind of what you were allowed to do. Yeah, I I remember I had to read the traffic book to take the driver's license test here when I moved here eight years ago, and I had never gotten a driver's license in a place where I had to study that that was the law. I think I've lived in probably maybe seven states Mm -hmm. at this point, and what I can tell you is every place I've lived, the people there think that no one in that town knows how to drive <laughs> except them. No, it's true. And you always, if you move into a state, you you say, oh, the drivers in this state are terrible. So, oh, Texas drivers want to move to Texas. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Any other uh, audience responses that, that uh, are worth noting? I don't know if this is small or not, but I feel it. This is from Trisha. Trisha says uh, that Trisha has come to accept, quote, that I am becoming my mother and mm. my father. I always have a back stock of everything, and my tools are meticulously organized. That doesn't sound like a bad thing. Those are some pretty decent traits to inherit from one's parents. Like, I think I'm inheriting my mother's middle-aged white lady dance moves, you know? Well, wait, because the last time that we were, you know, doing the show in the normal fashion, I remember you dancing out on stage, as is your want, and I thought your moves were quite funky. Yeah, you think? I've I've been dancing only for myself, like Billy Idol uh, suggests. And I really think there's a lot of like, like just sticking the butt out to the side and then sticking it out to the other side. It's very Elaine Bennis kind of, kind of action. <laughs> Maybe I've lost well, my touch. <laughs> my problem is my dances I do are like, they're like one TikTok move. <laughs> Sometimes if I'm excited and I'm like walking down the hall, I will just like do a woe to myself. When you do a woe, it's a woe, W-O-E. <laughs> Like, woe is me. Oh, my gosh. It is. It very much is. This seems like a great time to bring our next guest out, Elena. (laughs) She is the uh, co-creator of the podcast turned HBO series Two Dope Queens. She starred in the uh, Netflix film Ibiza. 
And uh, she was on Livewire back in 2018. She was there to talk about her book, which just feels oddly relevant, Elena. (laughs) Everything's trash, but it's okay. This is Phoebe Robinson recorded at the Alberta Street Pub. Phoebe, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's been two years. I know. And in in the interim, you starred in a movie, you wrote another book, and I'm exactly where you left me. No, no. Literally nothing has changed (laughs) about my life. We're all growing in different, you know, speeds. Yeah. (laughs) That is very diplomatic. I appreciate it. Uh, this uh, book of yours, which which is a really fun read, I was thank you. I was I was cracking up reading the book. It's just packed full of jokes and insights and stories from your life. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> the the book came about because it was after the 2016 election. I was feeling sort of like, oh, everyone's so angry and divisive, and we're all sort of like yelling at each other, not really communicating. But then I was like really inspired by seeing how like people were mobilizing. So I was like, oh, everything's kind of trash, but it's okay. Like people are like sort of trying to find the positivity in things. And when I was starting the book, you know, if you're going to say, like, everything's trash, I feel like you have to own up to, like, your own garbage first. You, 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 you say in the book that you, that you are, you know, basically a trash person, but you're okay with that. What makes someone yeah. a trash person? Well, I think my trash is, like, kind of, like, charming. Like, I watch reality TV or, you know, if I go to, like, a massage parlor, like, I'm a gassy person, so I'll just, like, sort of, like eke out farts like throughout uh yeah I, I i used to do this a lot like i would go to the movie theater i would go get chipotle i would sneak it into the movie theater and make like sure everyone like was on guard for me so i like wouldn't get caught so just sort of things like that where you're like oh phoebes get your life together like strangers like you yeah bring the chipotle and you'd be like hey okay everybody's yeah gonna- this is a community now we're all trying to make sure i don't get busted bringing in food from the outside yeah uh your mom seems to not care a whit. Mm -hmm. Any famous people you meet, be it John Hamm, Tom Hanks, she only wants to know, is it Viola Davis? Is it maybe Bruce Willis? (laughs) Yeah. Like, she's not giving you the feedback that a lot of parents would give when their child is, like, interacting with some of these major celebrities. Why? And also, has that driven you in your life to to not have the kind of obvious parental feedback on some of these things? Um, Yeah, I think just like parents get locked in on like five celebrities that they like and they will never like deviate from that. So it is Violet Davis is number one, The Rock, Bruce Willis. They love the Obamas, Oprah. And like that is like mostly it. (laughs) <laughs> like I think they'd be like if they saw Will Smith, they'd be my mom'd be like, okay, I guess. But like even then, I think she's kind of like, no, where is Viola here? Like where? Uh, are they the kind of parents that uh, celebrity stuff aside, we're always heaping praise on you and always like really into whatever you were doing? Um, um, I don't know if it was like heaping. It was like a decent amount. They're very supportive of my brother and I, but they're not. Like I remember, they didn't like financially support me through comedy. So when I was just had those really like my salad years, as you would call it, like I was just really sort of like struggling. And I when think, all you could afford was salad. Yeah, and I not- never understood that expression because salad is so expensive. But I wasn't going to like sweet greens. Like I was truly right. just getting like a dole bag like, of iceberg. Yes, iceberg lettuce from the grocery yeah. store that was two dollars, gotcha. and then that was like my salad <laughs> that I was having. 
So even when you were going through your years of trying to make mm-hmm. it in comedy, and I know you were working a day job and then doing comedy at night, your parents were supportive, but they were not, like, funding the operation. Yeah, and I think I also, you know, I think anyone who's a parent and your kid is, like, in New York trying to pursue a career where there's no safety net you're going to worry. So I kind of wouldn't tell them like how much debt I was in. I was just like, everything's cool. I'm like, okay. But I was like so poor and it was really rough. It was so rough for a long time. But then Mm -hmm. as you detail in the book, Mm -hmm. you set yourself on this plan to get out of debt. Yeah. This is very impressive. Um, What was the secret? And don't say, become a television and film star who has <laughs> two hit books and a hit podcast. Cause that's not relatable um, to people. No, not. I think really what I did, it was like extreme budgeting where I just was like, I stopped eating out. This is like pretty early on my stand-up career. So if I had to like go out of town, like on the East coast, I would go to like Peter Pan or, bolt bus and I would wait till there was like a $1 bus ticket and that's how I would be able to do my gigs out of town. I would only stay at friends' apartments because I couldn't like stay at a hotel. So it was a lot of just like, you're not going to have a life. And I didn't have a life for like years, but I got out of it. Wow, that's really yeah. impressive that you committed to that and that you stuck with it. It must yeah. have been hard. It was hard, but it was sort of, I was kind of like, is this what every comedian goes through? And I, I think the answer is yes. Like, just asking all my friends, it's like, yeah, we were all like, I have friends who were like nannying for a really long time. And they were like, uh, you know, I wasn't getting paid that well being a nanny. Like, just lots of friends in comedy are just kind of grinding it out and doing whatever it takes to sort of make it to the next level. Don't you feel, though, like debt is a really... It's a real problem for most Mm -hmm. Americans, but in particular, I think, younger Americans Mm -hmm. because student loans and because of credit cards and because of the real estate market, I feel like young people are swimming in debt, and it's, like, going to have a generational effect. Absolutely. I mean, I was $45,000 in debt from uh, going to Pratt Institute. and um, That's a lot of salad. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of salad. And it, it was just kind of like the thing no one tells you when you graduate college that, like, the jobs necessarily aren't going to be there. But so in the book, the reason why I wrote about my my journey through my whole debt process, which lasts several years, is because, like you said, like, oh, you have the podcast and blah, blah, blah. And I think, like, Instagram is sort of, like, the highlight reel of, like, your life. But it was, like, while it looks cool that I have, like, this podcast or whatever, it's, like, the truth of the matter is I was, like, financially struggling. So I just wanted to be open and honest and talking about debt because I feel like so many of us struggle with it. And we just feel, like, maybe shame or just, like, we're not allowed to express that sort of stress we're walking around with every single day. Uh, Phoebe, I was surprised to read in your book that you had no swag in your 20s. You are Are you surprised? Yes, because you seem very confident. You're a part of all these hit projects. Uh, You have an entourage. You had a minimum of four people with with you when you showed up here. First of all, it's not an entourage. It's just to keep this What's the minimum number of people where it becomes an entourage? I think it's like five. But I I feel like I normally just walk around by myself. Yeah. I'm not trying to entourage shame you, but I do think that you have an energy about you that Mm. seems like you're comfortable in your own skin and you're a funny person, you're a smart person. These are all things that seem like they would accrete to a certain swagginess, which you say you didn't have in your 20s. Yeah, I definitely do. I don't know. I like I was never the cool one in high school. I don't know. Like I think I just embrace who I am and that like I love you too and I talk about Oprah all the time. I love 90s TV. Like I but I don't think I'm cool at all. 
and I'm not saying this so you can be like, no, you are cool. Like, I just don't think I have swag. I think I just sort of just like, I'm kind of a geek and I think that's okay. Oh yeah. Like I think everyone is. Well, are you surprised then that this has all worked out for you? Because like stand-up comedy is a surprising thing to go into. Like you've chosen a career path that most people that get into that are like, I'm exceptional and everyone needs to look Have at me. Have you met stand-up comedy? Most of them are like lamos and like they're so self-loathing. And imagine yeah. this. I'm a failed stand-up comic. <laughs> so do the math on that. Walk that one back. Um, yeah, I think like I'm I think I'm an extroverted introvert. Um, and so comedy is my outlet where I can like sort of like have the attention. But like in my regular life, like I think I'm just really sort of like more reserved than my public persona kind of lets off. But that's good for my career so I can make money. Yeah. <laughs> your book is Everything's Trash, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some non-trash moments of your life that yes. are also in the book. For instance, you know, just like swimming with Julia Roberts off of her <laughs> yacht in um, Serbia. Uh, Croatia, yeah. Croatia. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, how did that happen? That was pretty wild. So, Abitha, we shot it in Serbia and in Krokro. That's why I call Croatia. And Does Croatia I, know you're calling it Krokro? No, has no idea. Yeah. And it's like, can you please stop once you hear this interview? Um, but um, yeah, so her husband, Danny Motor, was the director of photography for the movie. So Julia and the kids would come out. And Vanessa Bayer, who also stars in the movie, like her and I are like, we were so thirsty for Julia's like approval. Like we would constantly be like, can we hang out? Every single day, like, can we do brunch? Like, whatever, like, we'll hang out. And they always said yes, and we're very su- surprised by it. Um, so anyway, one weekend, Danny was like, oh, yeah, they're coming to town. Like, we should all hang out. And we are like, yeah, let's do it. And he was like, let's get a yacht. And I was kind of like, just, you get it? Because I can't afford it. Uh, <laughs> I'm still in year five of the seven-year plan yeah, to pay right? my debt off. <laughs> this is no we. This is a you get the yacht. Um <laughs> But then I'm getting the yacht. It was super fun. And they all, it was just, I was the only person of color on this boat. Um, and so naturally they all knew how to swim. And I was like, oh, I don't. I'm like the stereotype. I just never got into swimming. And um, they're like, you could do it. You could do it. And I was like, I don't know. I'm really scared. And they're like, the water is so buoyant in Croatia. Like, just go for it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to trust you guys. But also, like, white people in boats, like, not a great, like, history. Um, but, <laughs> <I've> got- <laughs> but we're going to turn this around. Um, so uh, I got in the water, and Julia was like, holding me and I was just like Julia Roberts was holding America's me. sweetheart yes. is hold, it's cradling you yes. in the water yes and I was just practicing my kicks and being like terrified and she was like so sweet and tender and it was like one of like the best memories of my life well I'm glad to hear that even though everything is trash there are things that are in fact not trash mm-hmm. in your life but we have some actual questions about trash and garbage uh, uh, which is a big deal here in Portland. You got to throw the right thing in the right receptacle. Oh, cool. This is this is serious business. We wanted to get your opinion on this because you know a lot about what is and isn't trash. Okay. Uh, so we have a little quiz for you. This is a part of the show we call Let's Get Quizzical. Let's get quizzical, quizzical. I want to get quizzical. Let's see if you know your stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? So good, you guys. <laughs> okay, uh, let's start off with a quick multiple choice question here okay. in Portland. Which of the following is not 
actually considered trash. Please, no help from the audience here at the Alberta Street Pub. Oh, man, this is hard because in New York, everything is just thrown on the street. So we have no, <laughs> no idea. Okay, Portland's uh, much better. Okay. okay. Uh, the plastic container that your arugula came in, is that trash? Uh, bacon, grease, and a sealed container, is that trash? Heavily used diapers, is that trash? Or envelopes, is that trash? One of those things I just read you is technically not trash here in Portland. Probably the bacon, right? Close. It's actually the envelopes. So it wasn't close. No, you're actually... <laughs> Literally, the f- other than heavily dirty diapers, maybe yeah. the furthest you can get. Envelopes okay. are not trash. They are, in fact, recyclable. Oh, They're see, not trash here in Portland. That makes so much sense now. I'm just saying if you get any fan mail oh. while you're in Portland, Phoebes, okay. the, uh, the envelope goes in the recycling, yeah. not in the trash. How about this? Okay. Trash people. Let's talk about a garbage person. A garbage, not the people who pick up refuse, but, you know, a garbage person. Oh, okay, got they it. They are typically defined as somebody who's terrible in a sort of everyday way. Mm-hmm. Are any of the following behaviors enough to classify someone as a garbage person? Okay. Coming to work on day three of a nasty cold and touching everything, is that garbage person behavior? Yeah, stay the hell at home. <laughs> uh, how about this one? Responding to a text... Uh, over a day later saying, sorry, just seeing this now. I do that all the time. <laughs> that is such a, uh, yeah, I'm really bad about that. I got to retire yeah. that move. I mean, everyone, in my, everyone in my life knows yeah. my email isn't being hella crazy. <laughs> it couldn't be that hella crazy all year long. Uh, what about, is this a garbage person behavior? Frantically pushing the shut door button when you see someone rushing trying to get to the elevator. Yeah, that's that's bad karma. You should not do that. That's the worst one. Yeah, that's really You think rude. of all of those? Yeah. yeah. That's like forcibly ask, like trying to shut someone out. Yeah. Uh, okay, which of these things that are currently acceptable in society are trash and which are tolerable? Okay. All of our mail is now just catalogs. Like, we just don't get any mail that's not catalogs. I, that is trash. Like, yeah. we're wasting so many trees. Let's stop. Okay. Uh, canceling plans under an hour before you get there via text. Trash or tolerable? I mean, I'll do that. I will do that. So I tolerate, but I know that's like rude, but I'm also like sometimes just don't want to put on pants. So, right. Yeah. How about self service checkouts? Trash or tolerable? Oh, I love that. Tolerable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, especially if I'm like on my period, I'm just buying like, you know, pads and ice cream and like my doll. I don't want to like right. just have to like put that in front of someone else right. and be like, now you're a part of this story. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> that's my it. me time. So I'll just uh, <laughs> All do right. it myself. Phoebe Robinson says tolerable. <laughs> Phoebe Robinson, everybody, check out her book and her podcast and her HBO show and her movie. That was Phoebe Robinson, recorded back in 2018. Elena, Phoebe has been so busy since she was on Livewire. I mean, we can't rule out the fact that there was a huge Livewire bump Mm -hmm. because her career is going gangbusters. (laughs) She moderated Michelle Obama's book tour. Wow. Um, She started a production company over at ABC Studios, and she has a talk show that is going to be premiering in 2021 on Comedy Central (gasps) entitled Doing the Most with Phoebe Robinson. Oh my gosh, um, I'm so watching that. Yes. Something to look forward to, which Lord knows we all need that right now. Mm -hmm. All right, you're listening to Livewire from PRX. We gotta take a real quick break 
but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, special thanks this episode to Don Parker of Portland, Oregon. Don is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports us with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support because it is how we are able to do the show. So, Don, thank you so much for keeping this thing going. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the LiveWire House Party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Uh, We're talking about acceptance this week, you know? People should accept reality. (laughs) So here's what I need to accept. I need to accept the reality that our musical guest this week is cooler than I'm ever going to be. Which is probably not a surprise to the listeners that that would happen, but it's shocking to me. Um, The thing is, though, he got a very early start, okay? He was busking at the Sundance Film Festival when he was 11 years old. Um, And then this performance that we're going to play, it's actually from a couple of years ago when he had reached the uh, ripe old age of 17. (laughs) And he was promoting the release of his first full album titled I Am Nice. Uh, This is Sammy Brew along with KJ Ward recorded from the Alberta Street Pub. Take a listen to this. Sammy, welcome back to Livewire, man. Thank you for having me, dude. I feel so good. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do, actually. Me and KJ are sleeping in a van now. Okay. So we're working our way up in the world. Yeah. It's going pretty good so far. So. Were you sleeping on, like, a, a, a motorcycle earlier? Like, how's the van an improvement? <laughs> uh, it's actually my first car. I got my license not too long ago. Congratulations. <laughs> so I needed something to keep this train moving. You are really adventuring. What song are you going to play for us, Sammy? Uh, I'm going to play a song that uh, is on an EP that I just put out not too long ago. Uh, This song is called Our Garden. All right, this is Sammy Brew with KJ Ward right here on Livewire Radio. became who 
I was told my chances, they are endless But that ring, it just seems too far out of sight Sammy Brew and KJ Ward right here on Livewire Radio. By the way, an update on Sammy. He is now 19. <laughs> He's released a new album called Crash Test Kid, uh, which is out now. All right, before uh, we get out of here, a little uh, sneak peek at next week's show. We are going to be talking to Rachel Bloom, <laughs> the creator of the great TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She has a new book out. Also, we're going to be talking to the poet Natalie Diaz, whose book, Post-Colonial Love Poem, is a finalist for the National Book Award. And uh, we are going to have music from Kevin Morby, uh, which is honestly the one thing that my kid finds impressive about me, <laughs> is that we've managed to secure Kevin Morby as a musical <laughs> guest on the show. So I will take it. Um, also, of course, we're going to be getting your answers to our listener question. That is where our social media manager, Ariana Donoville, comes in. Hi, Ariana. Hey, Luke. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah? Are you are you staying active inside? Are you keeping yourself entertained in some way? Yes, I just um, tried a hand at food photography. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, what so was the random. food? I made a pie for the first time ever. Yeah, as a baker, I never, I don't like pies. I don't usually make it, but I made it and I was like, I'm going to make this fun. Now, here's the question though. Did the pie taste okay or just look great? Who cares? Don't say. Yeah, I was told that it tasted good. I gave it to three different people and I did two batches of it. So I'm like, here's number one, here's number two. Did a blind test, didn't tell them what I changed and then got back some feedbacks. Wow. Yep. I was told that my crust was a little hard. So if you have any crust, <laughs> any crust <laughs> recipes, send them my way. <laughs> that is the most like scientifically mm -hmm. rigorous taste test I've ever heard of on right? a pie. <laughs> How do you even have time to do the social media management of our radio show. <laughs> hey, speaking of which, uh, what is the question for the uh, listeners this coming week? The question is, what is something you're thankful for? Oh, classic. Aww. That's great. Yeah. Yep. Because it's Thanksgiving next week. Yes. So that's nice. Um, how should people send in those responses? Listeners can submit their responses on our social channels. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Livewire Radio, as well as on Facebook. Ariana is also accepting any crust recipes yes. or tips. Yes. Sounds like that was the only part of that operation that didn't go well. All right, yes. Ariana, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Phoebe Robinson, Thomas Page McBee, and Sammy Brew. 
Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring, who also composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixed this episode along with Corey Schreppel. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Tina Reagan of Seattle, Washington. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear LiveWire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.